We're going to mention a book um, before I start this morning um, that I'll, I'll allude to a couple times during the sermon. Um, I could not recommend this book more highly. It's by Brad Bigney. It's called Gospel Trees, and uh, we're going to be talking about the subject of idolatry. Uh, and he just does a wonderful biblical exposition of the way idolatry works in our hearts. This is just a super helpful book. I, I think a fairly easy read. He's just a very easy to read writer. So I am putting a copy up here that is free for the taking. Um, we have copies that are available at a reduced price, so don't fight either. Don't make this book an idol that you have to come up and fight for it. But if you if you will read it and you feel like it's something that will benefit you and it's still there afterwards, please help yourself to it. It is there. Uh, we will pick up this morning in Isaiah 41, but I just want to draw your attention for just a couple minutes to a passage in the New Testament just to sort of set the stage for what we're going to look at, and that's 1 John chapter 5. 1 John is a letter that is talking about what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in the Lord Jesus Christ to know him as the Son of God. And in that last chapter of 1 John 5, really he just is sort of summarizing and, and emphasizing that in order to be rescued from sin and death, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to give eternal life. And that by believing in him, your life would be being changed. That it's not just a, a knowledge of facts, but that it is a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And John gets to the end of that letter that has really that last portion begun with this great description of Jesus. And he writes this in 1 John 5. These are the last two verses of the letter. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Verse 20 seems to be the fitting ending to 1 John. It just seems to to flow out of everything that he's just been saying about who Jesus is and how he came to make you right with God and to trust in him and have eternal life. And then there's verse 21, which almost feels like an afterthought, especially if you look back through 1 John, he's not talked about idolatry or idols in the course of, of 1 John. He's not used those words and really addressed that specific topic. And so here he says, little children... Keep yourselves from idols. I think when we talk about idolatry, whether we acknowledge it or not, it's tempting to see it as sort of an Old Testament problem. After all, if you just look at the preponderance of the evidence in Scripture, the, the word idol used about 140 times and only about 20 of those times in the New Testament. And when it does appear, it's often speaking of idolatry as the pagans are practicing it in cities like Corinth and warning against those kinds of practices. And yet, Here's the word of God, near really near the end of the, the New Testament, saying to followers of Jesus Christ, you need to guard yourselves from idols. You need to guard your own hearts from being drawn by idols. Now, idols in the ancient Near East, usually man-made objects, metal, wood, stone, carvings, things that were, were, were clear objects that people could see that were meant to represent gods, pantheon of gods, sun gods, uh, moon gods, justice gods, water gods, fertility gods. In Isaiah's day, you would have had Babylon and Assyria and, and just a multitude of 
gods in these nations that, that they believed gave them victory in warfare that they worshipped, uh, and their idols were the things that embodied those gods. So it was kind of like bringing the god to the, the visible level so that they would then worship it. Now, today we, we look at that and, and we think that's foolish. The, the idea of taking wood or, or stone or metal and worshiping an object made of that seems to us to be folly, and that's exactly the way Isaiah is going to treat it as, as being folly. And yet, near the end of the New Testament, we have this, this call, this convicting statement, little children, guard yourselves, keep yourselves from idols. And so the, the threat apparently is still real. For as easy as it is for us to, to look at what we're going to see in Isaiah today and spot the foolishness of worshiping these man-made objects, the sin of idolatry did not simply go away with the passing from the Old Testament to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, it, it morphs into something even more insidious. Ezekiel 14.3 describes it this way, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. There, there's the real danger. It's not just the the image, the, the, the object that's been made, it is when the, the thing that I crave, the thing that I, I want for pleasure, when that begins to form in my heart as this overwhelming desire. Idolatry is about worship. We've been made to be creatures who, who long for something bigger than ourselves, who long for something to worship. And so we when we worship, we are, we are giving ourselves to that. We are pursuing that. And idolatry works in this way in that it captures our thinking. It becomes that which drives us. It's the, the, the thing that we go to bed thinking about and we wake up and we are still thinking about it if we haven't even dreamed about it at some point during the night because it's just that consuming. It becomes that which we focus on. Worship and idolatry are, are so crucial for the people of God that it becomes the basis of the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Scripture repeatedly warns from the Ten Commandments through 1 John that idolatry is real and it is tempting to us and drawing to us. The book I mentioned to you before, Gospel Treason, Brad Bigney gives this short definition of idolatry. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. That's exactly what we're going to see Isaiah confront the Israelites are surrounded by these cities and these nations, all of whom have this myriad of gods that they worship, who are rivals to the living God, and yet they are not because they, as Isaiah will make clear, they, they really are nothing. They're not trying to compete with Israel's God. They, they just simply believe that this is our God. This is our God who gives us success. But the Israelites are constantly tempted by those gods. They are drawn in by those gods to the worship of them. Think about this maybe in terms of some of the language we looked at a month or two ago back in James chapter 4 and, and why it is that we, we have fights with each other, why we have those discussions with each other that sometimes get heated and a little more intense than just conversations, why we, why we quarrel with one another. And what does James say? He says, is it not because of your desires? It's the things that, that you crave in your heart 
and, and you have this longing and this person is not satisfying it or they're getting in the way of it and it's not being fulfilled and so I get angry and you, you get my frustration. But what's behind that anger and that frustration? It's idolatry. It's ultimately the sin against, against the person is, is obvious to us, but it's the sin against God because ultimately what that's demonstrating is my sin against you is the outward manifestation of my discontentment with God. It is believing that, that God is not supplying what I want in this circumstance, and, and you're somehow blocking it. But in the end, what I'm saying is the Lord is not providing. He's failing me in some way. My energy and affection and desires and thinking are all focused in this direction, and I'm not getting it. And so the God who made me, who knows me best, who promises to be with me and provide for me and care for me, now is displaced because the desires that are ruling my heart become paramount. It's exactly what Paul speaks of in Romans 1, 22 and 23, when he describes this exchange that goes on. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. There is an exchange of worship, taking the creator and instead of worshiping him, now worshiping something in the creation, a person or, or something that I want so turn to Isaiah 41. Idolatry is a worship problem. Remains very real for you and I. It is not simply an Israelite problem or a problem in Judah. So as we read Isaiah confronting idolatry, we need to, we need to see that this rises up in our own hearts. These portions of Isaiah unfold a drama that still confronts you and I today. And this drama is God versus everyone and everything else that seeks to displace him in my life. Everything and everyone that competes with him for ultimate priority in my life. Everything and everyone that seeks to capture my heart, mind, and affections more than him. And that's the drama that's here that's also going on in our hearts. We're going to look at two sections in Isaiah this morning. The one is here, the one is in chapter 44, both both focus on idolatry. Both are in this larger section of Isaiah that's really kind of courtroom drama. We've seen that sort of language already going back from chapter 40. The, the kind of present your case language in, in which God ultimately is making the, 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 the statement, the, the judgment, that he alone is God. That, that that's where this, this case is going. It is to take everything else and compare it to him, and demonstrate the point that, that he alone is God. When we started this series in Isaiah, we titled it, There is Only One Savior, Only One Savior. And, and that's where that'll come up in, in chapter 43. It's in this section that the, the court case is presented to say, there can only be one God. He is alone. He is creator, judge, savior, and Lord deserves all glory and honor, and we owe those things to God, and these other things are not. They are nothing, as he will say. So as part of this courtroom drama, God's going to contrast himself versus the idols, showing the foolishness of idolatry. I'm going to start in chapter 41 down in verse 21. Let me just read a few verses, 41 and 21 through 24, just to get us started. And here's the courtroom language. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. 
Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Present your case. This is God summoning the idols into his courtroom and saying, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to do a little comparison here. And we're going to look first at your knowledge. So the, the idols are, this is, this is looking back both in Judah's history, there's struggles with idolatry, but this is in particular, this is prophetic because Isaiah is looking ahead. The son who comes after Hezekiah is King Manasseh, and under King Manasseh becomes some of the very worst idolatry in, in, in Judah's history. Idols will be set up in the temple, and so you come out of this, a, a generation that sees God rescue them from the almost 200,000 Assyrians who surround the city of Jerusalem. And God miraculously delivers them, and they see his hand. And hardly a generation later, and there are idols set up all over Jerusalem and in the holy places. And Manasseh is leading them into evil, 2 Kings 21.9. Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So God sets this courtroom scene up. Come, idols, make your case. And the first two things that he's going to compare them on are knowledge and power. This first section, verses 22 through 24, it's a test of knowledge. Idols, do you know what is to come? Speak, idols. Tell us what, what we are to look forward to. Tell us what's coming tomorrow or next year or, or later when the people of Judah are exiled in Babylon. Tell us what will happen. And of course they cannot. It's, it's folly that they cannot speak to the future. But it's not just that either, that it's not just predicting the future sort of that distinguishes the idols. God also says, tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. On the surface, it would seem like virtually anyone could recount some historical facts. If, if the former things are, are speaking history, virtually anyone could say, well, on this date, this happened, and in this year, that happened. But that's not what God is, is demanding of them when he says to, to tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them and know their outcome. God is saying, give me a, give me a coherent understanding of history. Take, not just tell me what's in the future, but tell me the past and, and how it comes to this point. So why I am here today, why, are, why, why we are where we are. Show me how, how the nature of man has brought us to this point. Show me how the providence of God has worked in all this. Explain to me today in light of the past. Historians try to do this all the time, interpret history, and we know that their, their interpretations are flawed and, and, and just subject to human bias and, and limited knowledge. And God says, I, I not only tell you what is to come, but I can tell you why you're here today. I can tell you why this is the outcome of what happened in the past because I can explain the former things. That is the transcendent knowledge of the creator. He's not only sovereign over the future and, and knows all things, but he also understands and knows all about humanity's history and can explain today in light of the past. And you sort of get this picture in the courtroom, these wooden idols, silent as God says, explain these things. Tell me what's to come. Tell me why we're here. Can your idols do that? They cannot. But it's not just this knowledge issue. It's do your idols 
occasionally false prophets might make a prediction about something that is vague, but sort of semi comes true, right? And so he says that the next issue is not just knowledge, but it's power. Do, do, they, do they know these things? Better yet, do they have the power to make the things happen that they say will happen? And so Isaiah 41, 25 down through 29, he says, I stirred up one from the north. He's now talking about future deliverance of the people of Judah from exile in Babylon. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. He's talking about their deliverance from Babylon. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they all are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Verse 25, God's prophesying of the future. And, and we know this because Isaiah will go on in, in the next few chapters to, to elaborate on this one who is coming, but it's the rescue of the Jews from captivity in Babylon. And he promises that there, there will be a human ruler who is raised up, that he sends. And so we will get to chapter 44 and 45 where he identifies Cyrus of Persia, who at this stage, 150 years before Cyrus, Cyrus hasn't even been born at this point. And yet God is saying... I have a deliverer because not only do I know what will happen, I'm also the one who, who forms history. It, it works according to my design. And so I will raise up this one who is not even on the world scene at this moment. And he will be the one that I will send to provide the defeat of Babylon a century and a half from now. So it's not just God's incredible knowledge of things to come that crushes the idols in the courtroom, but it's his power to move the course of history, to raise up the Persians, to defeat the Babylonians. It's a, it's a sequence that when you follow it, historically, it, no one would have predicted the Assyrians being defeated by the Babylonians, and certainly not the Medes and the Persians coming and taking over Babylon. It all, it all seemed so far-fetched. But that's how chapter 41 ends. It focuses on this complete lack of knowledge by the idols. He says, are you, are you turning to them for counsel? Because they've got nothing. They can't answer your questions. They don't understand the past, and they don't know the future, and they can't change the future. Verse 29 says, their works are nothing. ESV calls their metal idols an empty wind. It sounds like a description, uh, kind of a one sort of picture description of a kind of wind. It's really empty end wind in, in the Hebrew. So it's the idea of something that lacks substance and something that is just void. He's just trying to multiply the effect of saying, they, they've got nothing for you. In fact, the word that he uses there for empty is the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 1-2, where prior to God's creative work, the earth is formless and void. It is without form. It is just chaotic. There's, there's nothing of substance there. And so he's saying they are utterly without power. They have nothing. Now, this is, this is the point again where I would suggest to you that you and I think, I know this. I've got my, I've got my Bible doctrine down and I understand that God is omniscient. His, his knowledge is 
is magnificent. There's nothing that's outside of, of God's knowledge. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. No one can thwart him or stop him. So clearly it's absurd to think that these idols are any kind of rivals, that the, the false gods they represent are any kind of competition. God is supreme and alone in knowledge and power. But here's where our idolatry, I think, stumbles on the same rocks as those of the people of Judah. Think about the idols that capture your heart. Uh, maybe it's a relationship. If only this person would love me. If only this person would recognize me. If only I could be married. If only my spouse looked like this or acted like this. If only we had a child. If only I had a better job. If I, if I could only be promoted and make more money, if I could just be appreciated and recognized, if, if I could just live there or, or drive that or have that hairstylist or, or, or fill in the blanks, right? Not all are evil desires until they capture my heart and desires and thinking more than God. And, and the dashboard gauge that helps me to see that is probably labeled discontentment because it's the one that, that when I start to get agitated because I'm not getting my way, because my day is going terribly and it's other people's fault, it's certainly not me, it's gotta be these other people who are in my way and that dashboard gauge just starts ticking up toward discontentment. And that's the connection I think back here to Isaiah. Verse 27 again, God is speaking and he says that They've told you nothing. They've offered you no rescue. Verse 27, I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. In verses 25 and 26, God had just assured his people, a deliverer will come, I will send him, I will raise him up. And so verse 27 is saying, and I am the first to declare this to Zion. You didn't hear this from the idols. They, they don't know this because they have no power to do this. I am declaring this to you because they can't rescue people. And what is it that is to come, he says at the end of verse 27, what is it that I will bring? Good news. I am the herald of that good news. I'm the one who brings that. God declares to his people that there will be rescue and salvation and deliverance because God himself will do it. Now think about this. What, what do we have in common? with the people in Judah 3,000 years ago. We have different homes, different lives, different environment. Everything seems so much different, but at our core as human beings, we want peace, we want joy, we want meaning in life, we, wanna, we want to have purpose, we want something to come to calm our anxious hearts when we get stirred up. We want good news that meets us where we worry and that comes to us and doesn't just say platitudes, but that says, I have come to be with you and I can assure you that I will not leave you and I will deliver you. I will do good for you. That's, that, that's ultimately at the core of what we're, what we're longing for, but the, the false promises of the idols that we chase the, the relationships, the accomplishments, the, the pleasures, whatever it is, is that these things are my good news. 
that these things, when I, when I do this, when I have this, when, I, when I'm recognized this way, it feels good. That, that seems like the, the happy place. But it doesn't last, right? It, it, it never does. It's never ultimately satisfying. But I'm going to be so anxious and agitated if I don't. And that's how idols capture our hearts more than God. They become the things we crave because we think they will finally be the happy solution to where we are struggling and hurting. The drug that will ease the pain, the the person who, if they love me, will bring me joy, the job that sets my heart at ease, the secret sin that is my pleasure. And what God told his people 3,000 years ago stands today. Nothing, no one, nothing in creation, not even the person you love the most, has infinite knowledge and overwhelming power so that they can say to you, I love you, and I will never leave you or forsake you, and I will bring good as I see good for you because I know you intimately, and I will bring good into your life. They can't change our lives and give us peace. They, they do it. The, the problem with the, these pleasures is they do it in fleeting ways for short periods of time, and it's just enough to be like, like dessert where it tastes good for a time and that the pleasure seems good and then it ends and then it, it goes its way because at the end of this, whatever it is, it is not omniscient. It is not omnipresent. Every, every relationship has its collision points because we are sinners. There's nobody, I, I would dare say, there's nobody that you have ever spent a significant amount of time with and gotten along with that your relationship with that person you would characterize as absolutely perfect with never a conflict, never a disagreement, never sin breaking into that and causing collisions, because it it does, because we're broken. Every accomplishment comes at a cost. It lasts for a short time. I did it! And then somebody else comes along and does it quicker or better, and our accomplishment doesn't look so good anymore. Whatever it is, it cannot promise peace Enjoy like it says it does, because all, all our best hopes and dreams are riddled with brokenness because we are in a fallen world. and We are sinners. Only God is not limited by the frailties and limitations of creation. Only the gospel is that which holds hope for this life and the life to come and is the, the, the promise of a Savior who will stay with us. He is matchless in knowledge and power. Turn to to chapter 44, and let's just spend a couple minutes. One other section here. I'm I'm skipping over. Next week, Pastor Stewart will launch us into chapter 42, and and it's important that the the courtroom drama in 42 will begin to shine the light on the ultimate victor in all of this. We will be introduced in chapter 42. Behold, see my servant. And we will begin to see this servant who comes into view that we won't fully understand from what Isaiah is saying until we get all the way to chapters 53 to 55 and we begin to see, ah, we see who this servant is. We probably have enough history here with our New Testaments to know where we're getting at. But this courtroom drama still needs to be played out in terms of the contrast between what the people are clinging to and God. And so here in chapter 44, it is a brutal rebuke of idolatry. 
First one compares the idols in terms of knowledge and power. Here, the, the, the test is really that of source. Where do they come from and purpose? What, what are they intended for? Uh, let me start in chapter 44, verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame. And stop there. Courtroom drama, again, indictment. Stand up. So we, we focused, 41, mostly on the idols themselves. 44, more now the makers of the idols. Come and stand up, you who make these things, who participate in these idolatries. In, in verse 9, God describes the idol makers with the same Hebrew word that we saw in 41, 29, which is that word for nothing. Their works are nothing. They are void. They are empty. All who fashion idols are nothing. Verse 9 here in 44, they are nothing. What they, what they delight in, what they treasure, what they spend their time on has zero benefit for anyone. They are, they are worthless. And, th and that's why the point in verse 10 is, why would anyone do this? This is such folly. Why would anyone participate in this? Those who stand by and who witness this to their shame that they stand by. Because these are empty, they are like the idols they make, the work of their hands is utterly worthless. And those who buy their idols get nothing in return. All right, let me read on. I'm going to pick up in verse 12 and go all the way through verse 20. Isaiah 44, 12 through 20. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals, he fashions it with hammers, works it with his strong arm. Where have we seen strong arm before? We have God, right? And his strong arm to deliver God who is unceasing in his strength toward his people. Here's the iron worker. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes, marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. And there another little subtle remark of where does that rain come from that causes this tree to grow? Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it, warms himself, he kindles a fire, bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied, and he warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. They know not nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire and I baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and I've eaten and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is as scathing a rebuke of idolatry as we find anywhere in Scripture. You, you, few of the verbs that should stand out. He fashions a god. He shapes it in the figure of a man. He makes a god and worships it. Verse 17. 
Previous verses in chapter 44, God has said, I alone am the rock. I am your redeemer. I am your king. In verse 6 of chapter 44, God said, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. God has said, if we're going to compare where these things come from, I am the first and the last. I have no beginning. No one made me. I have been and I will be. I am eternal. These things that you're worshiping, you've made them from your own hands. How how is there even a comparison there? No one made God, but sinful people create these idols with this delusional attempt to control their world and ultimately set up rivals to God. And so in Isaiah's day, they they take the piece of wood, they use it to part of the wood to to make heat and cook food, and they they then craft so-called gods from the rest of it, half burned in the fire, and half is made into an object that they fall to their knees before and worship. It is a picture of the utter blindness and foolishness of sin. How can you worship something that you've made? The source of your God is yourself. You've made it, and now you're falling on your knees before it? That's absurd. It's Romans 1.23 all over again. It's sinners exchanging the glory of the immortal God for the worship of things that are mortal beings or statues of mortal beings. It is taking the indescribable, incomparable, eternal greatness of the creator and trying to drag him down to the level of carved images of snakes and birds. But this goes back to desires. This is where we we get caught again because we, ah, this is ancient and they were foolish and didn't understand. The idolaters in Isaiah 44... And the ones in Romans 1 are just like us today. They want something. They they want something badly. Look again at verse 17. The idolater takes the wood and it says, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, falls down to it and worships it. Look what he says. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. There is the goal. There is the purpose of the idolatry, whether it's the wooden object in Isaiah 44 or the idols that we create in our hearts, put in the most simplest of language. Do this for me. Rescue me. Save me. Fix me. Give me meaning. Do do something for me. The, the, The purpose of idolatry is I want something for me. The only imperative verb in that, that section, the only command in 44, 9 through 20 is the the person bowing down who demands of the idol, deliver me, this is your job. And and, and what he says there is not a statement of submission to the God when he says, deliver me, you are my God. It is an arrogant declaration of control. I made you to serve me, so do it. Be the God that I intended for you to be. Rather than looking to the creator and admitting that We are helpless, sinful, broken beings who desperately need his help and his grace and his strength, who who lie before him and, and plead for his provision. We substitute desires of our own saying, I want what I want and I demand peace, whatever it takes. Even if it means me coming home and telling the whole family loud and clear, I want peace. You better give it to me, right? There's there's our hearts exposing themselves in our our demands. 
It's as if we know best. I can manipulate my world to make things work the way I want them to, and yet it never works because there's no pleasure, no relationship, no accomplishment that ever lasts. We're, we're all eventually left with guilt or shame or regret or emptiness because what I demanded still didn't ultimately satisfy in the way that this courtroom drama is trying to lead us to. And only Jesus can. That, that, that there is one who provides satisfaction. And he is the one who ultimately satisfies. Our, our spouse, our children, our job, they can't bear the weight of our ultimate peace and satisfaction because they will fail us. We know this is dreadful, this idolatry. Verse 9 calls it an abomination. But the reality is this is, this is the prevailing worldview of our culture. And, and we, are, we are surrounded by a culture that takes the, the, the idea that there is a transcendent God who is over history, who is omniscient, who is powerful, and who is moving the course of history according to his purposes for his will. That idea is mocked by the media, whether it's news or entertainment. It is at minimum dismissed. It is more likely mocked in some way as being sort of as foolish as these people back in the Old Testament times. And so we, we swim in this sea of our own desires, stuff that our own heart generates, with a culture around us that is constantly cheering us to, go get it, you can do it. Pursue all your dreams, get everything you can, just keep going after it, because you can get it, it's all yours. You're saying, man, that's a killjoy, huh? We're gonna shoot all that down? But, but listen, God has such a great design for us. And his plan and his will are for our good if we will obey him. And the culture that, that dismisses the transcendent God is saying, just go get it. Get whatever you want. The elevation of self to, to God is normal now. And, and so uh, people make anything but God to be ultimate. My, my job, my wealth, my sexual orientation, my desire for pleasure without your restraints on it. They're not idols carved out of wood, but they are every bit the idols that God is condemning here. But here's the thing. Again, before we, before we go wag our finger at the culture, say, yep, this is you. First John 5, 21 says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It says, little children, this, these, these things are working in your hearts. These desires are there, and, and so you need to, to be on guard. The sin of making something or someone other than God to be ultimate in my life is a Christian problem, too, that you and I wrestle with. Just different things than blocks of wood or formed metal. Bigney's book, Gospel Treason, he writes about legitimate desires morphing into idolatrous demands. Again, I've mentioned some of these, but a single person desires marriage, a married couple desires a child, a person with a dead-end job looks for something better. All legitimate desires, right? But they can become idolatrous demands. I'll just give you the checklist that he gives in his book because I think it's so helpful. It may be becoming an idolatrous demand when you're doing one or more of the following, especially when you're doing it and you're pushing God aside in the process. You'll sacrifice for it. You'll spend time on it. You'll spend money on it. You'll talk about it. 
You'll protect it, defend it. You'll serve it. You'll perfect it. You'll think about it. You'll worry about it. You'll get angry when someone blocks you from it or messes with it. You'll build your schedule around it. Now listen, there's a balance here, right? You do sacrifice for your spouse, and you do spend time with your kids, and you do spend money on your house. There's always something that has to be fixed. But is any of this getting in the way of doing what God desires? Is any of this creeping into that area of being, I have to have this. This is that important. Is your desire to to give your kids experiences in sports or other activities taking the place of showing them that God is ultimate? I'm not. Don't go home and say, Pastor said we can't play soccer anymore. Sorry, kids. You're done. I'm not saying that. But it's when is that becoming this thing that becomes so paramount that seeing God as ultimate is getting lost in the process? Is your own desire for rest and pleasure morphing into something that swallows up your time and your energy such that when you go home, I'm I'm watching football games from one o'clock this afternoon till 11 o'clock tonight because I deserve this. This is my, my pleasure, right? You know what it is in your own heart, what that, what that craving is for that thing that becomes an idolatrous demand when it starts pushing out, seeing God as ultimate and spending time and worshiping Him and loving Him and, and helping our families to love Him. Psalm 115 is another passage that condemns idols, and I'll finish with this in, in Psalm 115. Pastor Stewart and I were talking about this one this week, and, I, and it's just a helpful couple of verses here. He, he spent a fair amount of time saying same thing about idols. They don't speak, they don't see, they don't hear. And then he writes this, Psalm 115, verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. That is, that's a severe warning. Those who, who dabble in idols become like their idols. That speaks to the very spiritual blindness that captures our hearts that sometimes we don't even see this. We don't even see that this is becoming this consuming passion for me. We just... It's just us. It's just part of who we are. It's just part of what we love. And and it becomes such a focal point that we don't even see it. But look at the next verse. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Trust in the Lord. Look to him. If there's anywhere we need help in this, it is often in just identifying these things. It's often just having God help us to see where am I struggling in my trust in you and I am trusting in this person, this thing, this whatever it is? Help, help me to trust in him. Oh, Israel, don't give yourself to these cheap substitutes. Don't, don't give yourself to them. You have a God who loves you, so repent of your idolatry and trust Yahweh. He is your help. He is your shield. In him you will find fulfillment. The, the reality of all this is we don't get everything we desire. I know that's a surprise. But we don't get everything we desire. But even even more so than that, we don't always get the rescue that we want. Cry out to God. Change this. Get me out of this. Deliver me from this. And there are times we don't even get that rescue that we desire. But if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you get something better. You get Jesus Christ and the truths of his gospel forever. 
You have the hope of a Savior who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Trust in me. I know what is best for you. Rest in me. And even if you don't get that that thing you desire, that person you desire, even if you don't get rescue from this situation, I am with you. And what lies ahead is even greater than what you've experienced now. Let's pray together. Little children, ah, Lord, you say it to us in your word. Keep yourselves from idols. Help us to do that. Help us to, to see our hearts in a way that shows humility. Lord, we need the help of your spirit to convict and to show us areas where we are, we are so yielded to people or things that they are becoming more and more ultimate in us and, and you are being moved off that position, that rule of our lives. Lord, I, I'll just take a moment here, my brothers and sisters and I, and, and, and we're just going to be quiet before you. Lord, I, I pray that if there has been conviction in the hearts of my friends here that or those watching online, that you would help them to see that because it seems like over and over again in Scripture, the starting point on these sorts of things is to repent. It is to see these and to repent. And so I'm, I'm going to take a moment and just be quiet and let you pray and ask God to just help you if there are areas that you've been needing to see uh, where you are craving something and it's becoming idolatrous in some way. Father, you've heard the words of your people and with them comes our need for help. We cry out to you that we don't want things that would seek to displace you from your rule in our lives and your grace and love for us. And so we pray that you would help us, that we would, by your Spirit, by the truth of your word, keep ourselves from these idols, that we would steer a path that embraces the forgiveness and grace and redemption themes of the gospel, that they would be the things that would capture our hearts and fill us with joy and cause us to know that there is hope and meaning in Christ and in Christ alone. Lord, I pray for anyone listening here or watching online this morning who is just feeling trapped and overwhelmed and does not feel like there is any hope for meaning or purpose. Lord, I, I would pray that they would see today that that hope comes in the person of Jesus Christ, that the servant that you sent is your very son, God in flesh, who died on the cross that he might bear the weight, penalty, judgment of our sin, our idolatry, and that in receiving your wrath and punishment, your son crushed the power of sin and death when he rose from the grave. And that in him there is eternal life. 
Lord, I pray that today would be the day that you would draw anyone in that place to, to see Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, help us to encourage and exhort one another. Help us to walk wisely with one another, to, to listen well if there are blind spots in our own lives or things that we need to see. Help us to be receptive to hearing your wisdom and your truth. Thank you that where this is all going in Isaiah is, is what we know to be true, that you are God, that you are worthy of our falling to our knees before. You are worthy of our praise, that you have provided the salvation that rescues us both from the, the, the loss of, of meaning in this life, but rescue us, us eternally into an abundant life that is in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.